My dog would come on stage with me a lot. He came out and he laid down front and center. And suddenly we heard giggling in the audience. Well, this is a sad song. You know, why were they laughing? And I looked down, my dog is totally licking his privates. <laughs> and it was like, okay, well, leave it to the dog. <laughs> was he doing it on the two and the four or on the one and the three? <laughs> yeah. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal Tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is our first Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Nancy Wilson from Heart. Nancy shares how 80s music was ruined by overthinking and too much cocaine. <laughs> how their hit song Barracuda was inspired by a record company slime ball, and why dating your bandmates is not the best idea. So, without further ado, let's go to the TMEP show! It really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not really? too much. There's well, too much yeah, perspective now. Alex, in this episode, I unveil my extremely original and out-of-the-box theory that all bands break up over one of six reasons. Okay. Give us a preview. Okay. Number one. Personality clashes like the one between Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth. That's legendary. What's number two? Power struggles or ego wars like the one between David Gilmour and Roger Waters that broke up Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. Okay, number three. Family squabbles like the Gallagher brothers from Oasis. Yeah, again, legendary. What's number four? Money issues like the ones that took down NWA. Mm-hmm. All right. Number five. Outside interlopers like Yoko and the Beatles. Ugh, poor Yoko. Never talked about that one on this show. <laughs> and uh, how about finally number six? Catastrophic intraband romances like Fleetwood Max. Yeah, that covers a lot of them. You've toured with many bands. Have you ever been in the middle of any of these kind of squabbles? I mean, I've seen them. I try to stay out of the middle, certainly, but I've been on the periphery. And, you know, in addition to the well-considered list that you put together, there's also things like substance abuse and the fact that sometimes people will shag each other's boyfriends and girlfriends outside the band. That kind of nonsense causes a lot of trouble. The Ramones, right? The Stones, many, many examples. But first and foremost, I want to call out Spinal Tap, right? They certainly fell victim to number two, the power struggles, and number five, the outside interlopers. Beyond that, look, while I was fortunate that no band ever broke up on my watch, I will say that personality clashes and the impact of interlopers, it changes the chemistry and there could be a lot of stress. Well, I can think of one instance that really screwed up our band. <laughs> our record label doubled as a jingle house, just to show you how hard we shop record labels. And one time in the middle of the night when we were recording our album, they said, hey, we have the urgent need to finish a McDonald's commercial. You guys want to sing it? And so we said, yeah. Well, 
one thing, we only have room in the budget for three vocalists. So myself, our bassist Scott, and our drummer Todd sang it while Arch, our guitarist, was left out in the cold. He actually played guitar on it, but he didn't sing vocals. Well, I didn't know how out in the cold Arch actually was until a couple weeks later, I received in the mail a stack of checks. And I'm talking about a stack, like they couldn't even close my mailbox for $28,000 for 45 minutes work, just singing, have you had your break today? Oh my goodness. I hope the IRS is listening to this. Arch did make $700 playing guitar. It was obviously a far cry from $28,000. To my credit, I brought up to the band that maybe we should all split it evenly. To my discredit, when the two guys said no, I said, okay, I'm not doing it if you're not. (laughs) And I would say two, three months later, Arch left the band. He never said that was the reason, but I wouldn't blame him if that was because that was really crappy of us. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem quite fair. He's a great guitarist and a great guy, still is. I just didn't have the right effing perspective back then, and I still feel guilty about it today. You know what, Alan? It's never too late to do the right thing. You could still cut him a check. Well, yeah, it is kind of late. And, you know, because of uh, inflation, I think it really wouldn't be worth very much today. And uh, I've got to, I've got to get my oh, wisdom boy. teeth out, and there's other things to happen. But Arch, uh, when you're in California... You can count on a deluxe meal, and I'll take care of it. At McDonald's. Yeah, I would keep those wisdom teeth. You can use all the wisdom you can get. But anyway, listen, (laughs) let's get to today's guest, Nancy Wilson from Heart. And you put her through those six ways that bands break up. I did. Her answers are really interesting. But first, listeners, please follow us at TMEP Show on Instagram and Facebook. Now, let's get to our conversation with Nancy. But first, a short break. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The The Corner Corner of Gray Street. And now a member of Rock and Roll Royalty who, along with her sister Anne, performed a version of Stairway to Heaven at the Kennedy Center that made Robert Plant cry. Hearts, Nancy Wilson. Nancy, I can't tell you what a pleasure this is. It connects me to John Sheldrop's pool parties in seventh grade <laughs> when I would slow dance with Jenny Clark and Lynn Olson to Dreamboat Annie. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Wow, a pool party in seventh grade. You know how it is, music sometimes when it's locked into a certain moment and it just brings you back there. 
Oh, that's great. Now, that's a funny intro talking about in seventh or eighth grade at a pool party hearing Dreamboat Annie, because at that age, music hooks you in with yep. like full imprint on your DNA. And it's always there for the rest of your life. You know, those are the times where music just builds your skin, you know, in a, in a whole way that never disappears from your life. It's a cool thing about music. I got to share a Dreamboat Annie anecdote too, because it's <laughs> a perfect kickoff. So do you remember the company KTEL oh, yeah. that used to put out compilation albums that were essentially like mixtapes on vinyl? Yeah. Well, the first album I ever owned was literally a KTEL record called Pure Power. It was being advertised on afternoon television while I was watching Leave It to Beaver after school or whatever. <laughs> it had Kiss, Hard Luck Woman on it, The Silvers, Boogie Fever, Alice Cooper, I Never Cry, uh, and it had Dreamboat Annie on it. Oh. I got that record, and what I think is absolutely nuts looking back at it is KTEL would cut off the ends of the song yeah. yep. so they could squeeze more tunes onto the LP. And I didn't even realize that right. until much later when I actually heard the full songs like on the radio or <laughs> on Kiss's rock and rollover album or whatever. Oh my God. That's hysterical. Well, you never got the eight track tapes. Remember the eight track tapes really yeah. cut you off. And how like in the middle of a song, they would switch sides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The cartridge itself would click, 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 clickety click. And then the rest of the song would continue <laughs> because it had to turn over in the middle of the song. All the technology has come pretty far, you might say, but there was one KTEL album at the time, and it was really always a real tacky commercial for those kind of album compilation. Sure. It was after Jim Carocci had died, and KTEL was hawking a greatest hits Jim Croce album. And so it showed different pictures of him singing Time in a Bottle and all the different hits that he had at the time. And then at the end of the ad, it said, be the first to get this beautiful compilation that represents the lifetime and the genius of Jim Soros. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Come on, KTL. You're the first guest of ours that was a star that preceded the Spinal Tap movie. And so I think it's a different perspective that you have of it. And I'm wondering, like, when you saw the movie for the first time, can you remember if you were like, oh, yeah, that's when this happened to us and that's when this happened to us? Do you remember? Totally remember. I mean, we had been on a less than successful tour. So we were in a trough point in our career. There was a few ups and a few downs along the way, like every roller coaster career has. And so we were in a trough at the time and had come back from an album called Passion Works. It was kind of the worst turkey we'd ever released. And we were <laughs> really in a bad state. We got back home to Seattle area. We went to the theater to see Spinal Tap. Oh boy. And it was really hard to laugh because it was a little too true for us. <laughs> we just had been through a whole bunch of stuff like that. And we didn't know how to feel. It was painful. It was painfully funny. But at the same time, it was the price of an education, too, you know. So over the years, we learned how to love it and love it more and more. 
And every musician you run into anywhere in the world, any rock musician can basically recite that movie top to bottom. Everyone says it goes to 11, you know. <laughs> and Chicago or wherever, where they get lost backstage. Cleveland. Cleveland, yeah, Cleveland. Every scene is classic. And everyone's been through those classic moments where the road manager gets it wrong and there's one room for five people instead of five rooms for each person. <laughs> all that stuff, it, it all happened. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize Hart's career mirrored Spinal Tap so closely and really at the very same time. Right there. Was it comforting to see their song Sex Farm become a hit in Japan? Did that inspire Hart's renaissance soon after? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was funny, but sadly funny, because we didn't know we were going to have a renaissance ourselves at the time. But then we did, which was lucky for us. But, you know, putting on the costumes and all that stuff really helped, because the 80s was a whole different animal. It left the mind-expanded era of the 60s and 70s, and it went into the ego-driven cocaine era. We survived it really well, and we made some really big hair videos. I mean, the biggest of all hair. <laughs> <laughs> I saw them. I was surprised. I didn't remember that. Spandex and big hair and corsets and stilettos and cast of Ben-Hur. <laughs> Three-day video shoots that were all the way up to the next morning, still going for your close-up after you've been up all night and stuff like that. So... It was really not the most conducive time to be a poetic artist, but it was a conducive time to make money. <laughs> I saw an interview with you and your sister, and she said you made a deal with the devil, a Faustian bargain. <laughs> it's great to see that you can own up to that now. You know, we're very big Cheap Trick fans, too, and Cheap Trick, their biggest song was The Flame, which they didn't even write. And that was kind of part of the time. Yeah. It became a whole new era of corporate music. And if you don't use these hit songwriter songs, then we're not going to push your album. And very much like with Alone and Deep Dream, some of our biggest ever songs. And they're great songs. I mean, still love to play those songs and still intend to do those songs. But there were some other songs that were really foisted upon us in the 80s and it wasn't a real fit. You know, we have our own sort of identity as a rock band. And we had a lot of energy around being proud of our own writing at the time. So when we were kind of asked to and expected to do a lot of other people's material, some of which are beautiful songs to this day, but others that really were not. And a lot of those other songs were victim songs. Like we didn't really want to buy into the idea of here's this woman in a song saying like, why can't you love me? <laughs> it was just never where we came from. So there was a lot of misses along the way with some of those 80s tunes, but songs like These Dreams and Alone and What About Love, they rose to the top and they remain the cream of the cream. <laughs> My first music business job, Nancy, out of college in Madison, Wisconsin, was working for Cheap Tricks manager, oh, wow. Ken Adamani. And I had Robin Zander in my car one time driving him from <laughs> one place to another in Madison. And I know that Richie Zito produced 
some of your records and produced the album with the flame on it for them. Right. And I was ribbing Robin a little bit about Richie's uh, high-level production compared to some of the gritty stuff of Cheap Freak's earlier right. era. And I suppose that's kind of similar for Hart, too. Yeah. Richie Zito was a really beautiful person. He was kind of a bad boy at that point that we worked with him in the studio. Yeah, it was kind of a druggy time, and we were all sort of bad boys together. But um, <laughs> when the album didn't really go anywhere, it was, I think, largely because of that. The partying was more important than the music at the time for a minute there. But with Cheap Trick, Xander, Rick, and those guys, they're the best people you'd ever want to meet. And we've toured with those guys so many times over, you know, come hell and high water throughout the years. And they're just as fresh today. And Rick Nielsen's son, Dax, is on drums in Cheap Trick now. And Robin plays more guitar now. And they've always had the ethic of a great rock band, one of the greatest rock bands ever. And they tour nonstop and they've managed to just continue to follow their bliss in a rock world. So I just have so much admiration and respect for Cheap Trick. And I always will. But going back to the production of the 1980s, it ruined a lot of good music. And I think Cheap Trick is the prime example. Those albums like One on One and Standing on the Edge are full of great songs, but they seem dated today. Right, right. The gated snares and all the triggering and all of the layering and all of the digital things started to come in, in the sound of keyboards as well. And the thing with Cheap Trick in the 70s that was so brilliant was how Beatles they sounded. Yep. They sounded like they're in a room, the energy's all at once together in the same room. In the 80s, nobody was doing anything in the same room or hardly at all at the same time. So it was all, you know, just uh, overthinking and too much cocaine, really. <laughs> when you boil it down, it's the cocaine. Yeah. I love that summary, though. That is so great. Overthinking and too much cocaine. That says it all. <laughs> there was a thing about Fleetwood Mac when they were doing, I think it was Tusk. But yeah. they were overthinking so hard because they probably had so much cocaine that they got the piano tuner to come every day and tune the same piano, but they never could hear it in tune. <laughs> there goes a year right there. So the 80s were really, a lot of unnecessary time was spent when you could have just been singing and playing, you know? <laughs> well, even my band, our first album was in 93, and we used ADATs. Uh, and although it certainly doesn't sound like the 80s stuff, it still sounds dated. Yeah. The next album... We used real instruments and real boards, and it sounded great again. Yeah, it was the fashion at the time, the sound fashion that was going on. And just because it was invented, you know, there was so much newly invented digital possibilities. And so add another bell, another whistle, another bell, another whistle, you know, it's kind of like... More cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say more cowbell. It needs more cowbell. More cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Before we started the conversation, Nancy, Alan and I were sort of kicking ideas back and forth, and we both noticed that Hart had kind of a reverse Spinal Tap moment when it came to the release of a particular record. Now, of course, in Spinal Tap's case, Polymer Records refused to release Smell the Glove <laughs> because of it having offensive album art, right? Right. Hart had what seemed like the exact opposite experience where you had a record company actually release an album, I think it was magazine, without your permission and with several songs like only partially <laughs> finished. Right. Is that true? And what can you tell us about that? Yeah, that is true. We were on a roll with the record company and they wanted us to put something out immediately. And we wanted to make a different album called Magazine that was like a gatefold with a magazine in it, with pictures and stories, with double album, concept album. And they didn't want to do that because it was going to be spendy, for one thing. And they just wanted to haphazardly release an album with tracks that we were still in process of recording, unfinished. We took them to court because they tried to put other players, not in heart, on the songs to finish the heart songs in a studio. And we were like, no, 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 that will not do. So we took them to court. And eventually what happened was the settlement became they had the rights to release a couple of live recordings that we'd done in clubs, like I've Got the Music in Me and like maybe a stairway to heaven, maybe in there, or that's the bootleg or something, I forget. But it was kind of like half bootleg, half album that we got a chance to finish recording the songs, but we had a week to do it. So we went to the studio and finished the few original songs we had been working on ourselves in a studio. It was like the finals week. We had one week to finish all the songs. So we were sleeping under the board. We were putting our parts down, doing our overdub, singing the songs, and sleeping at the studio until it was as much finished as we could finish and turned it in by a certain date. And it was just such a big scramble to get screwed over by a record company. <laughs> but, um, you know, the album's okay, but it just wasn't anything like we wanted to do. There's even a greater similarity to Smell the Glove in that didn't Mushroom Records release some kind of promo with you and your sister about being virgins or something? And that was the beginning of the rift? Well, the very first album called Dreamboat Annie had a picture on the cover of me and Anne with bare shoulders touching, you know, looking off. And some guy at a release party that was a slime ball went up to Anne and said, so Anne, yeah, how's your lover? And she goes, yeah, Mike's right there. He's fine. No, no, I mean your sister. How's your sister lover? And so they put out some press that was like, it was only our first time. And there was an insinuation that we were lesbian lover sisters because of the cover, which is like so tame by any stretch of the imagination today. So we were insulted because we were not lesbian lovers. We were just musicians with high ideals. You know, we had a lot of artistic integrity to protect. And so we decided to leave the company. So after that was when all of this other stuff with magazine kind of rolled out from there. So they could have stopped us from releasing the second album, like Bruce Springsteen was in a similar situation at the time. Right. 
but we've reached a settlement and we got a chance to finish our own music. So those were kind of uh, the Wild West days of record companies, you know. And you wrote Barracuda because of that, right? About that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that was the next album that came out, which was Little Queen that had Barracuda on it, which pointed fingers at the slime balls that did that to us. <laughs> Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. We talk a lot about band dynamics here, and it seemed like Hart went through everything. And <laughs> I want to bring up the various ways bands dissolve. And you tell me if this is relevant to Hart. All right, so the first one... Romances within a band, like Fleetwood Mac had that problem, ABBA. <laughs> what was Hart's experience with romances within the band and how it affected you guys? Very much a problem, yes. <laughs> that was one of the biggies, yeah, definitely. A big, huge one. I mean, when you're on the road and you're gaining momentum and popularity so fast, as we did from the very first album, it was two years straight on the road, right? Because offers kept coming. So all we had was the band. We were moving targets. We didn't have a chance to meet anybody else. You know, so we had romances inside the band. <laughs> and, you know, when you're in your 20s, it's proximity, I guess. Yes, that's a recipe for disaster, <laughs> as all of us probably know. Yeah, um, definitely, yeah. You know, I was also a concert tour manager. And on my very first tour, I got the advice, you know, don't fish off the company pier. Alex. And uh, yeah, I, to your point, I know that's a hard advice to follow. So anyway. <laughs> All right. So another way bands dissolve. Family turmoil like the Davies brothers, the Gallaghers and Oasis. Did you have any of that with you and your sister? Um, later, there was a little bit of that. Not ever in the first, oh, four decades. Yeah. <laughs> but um, a little bit later, the guy she married caused a big stir inside our family. And so, yeah, it's old news now. But that sort of put the brakes on things for quite a while, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, in Spinal Tap, Nigel says, we're closer than brothers. Brothers always fight. I'll give you my bad British accent for the last end. We really have a relationship. Oh, God, it's even worse than I thought. I'm not going to try. We that really have. Bad, yeah, it's really bad. I don't even know what that is. Hungarian. <laughs> we really have a relationship that's way, way past that. And then, of course, they fall apart. Um, <laughs> there must be something to siblings having problems. The Everly <laughs> brothers had problems. Barry and Robert and Gibb always had problems. But you're saying you guys were kind of a solid team until later on. Yeah. One reason is that we're girls. We're sisters. We're not brothers. So our sex dictates that we're more nurturing for 
other women and for each other and for men too. We were always military brats that had a real strong work ethic. We struck out to do this big rock band together and be the front people and make it loud, you know, make it strong and don't take no and don't allow ourselves to be imaged in such a way that we were victims or little mamby-pamby girls. So we took control of it and we stuck up for each other in those situations where we needed to be leaders together, where people didn't expect us to be leaders at all, expected us to toe the line and we did not. So we had a military sort of strategic ethic all the time with each other to get this done our way, to make it happen our way. Be like the Beatles instead of try to be a girlfriend to the Beatles. Be like Led Zeppelin instead of trying to be a girlfriend of Robert Plant or Jimmy Page. Be that. Gender-free. Be human rock examples of musicians who can competently go out and do it. <laughs> so you've mentioned some other bands that had different circumstances that led to their either dissolution or at least troubles. You brought up the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. There are a lot of power struggles like Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses. What about power struggles within the band? Did Hard experience of those? Um, when you're in a leadership role, like me and Anne both, there's always decisions to be made about the direction it's going to go. You know, how much touring do we really want to do? How much personal life do we want to have? What about starting a family? So. If there was ever a headbutting moment with me and Anne, it was about stuff like that. It was about how many tours can we do without having a home life? How many years can we just tour, 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 tour and never have a chance to start a family? And so those were the things that as we went along had to be figured out. And so the power trips around that, like I was on a power trip to be able to start my family. So what I had to do right. was tell Anne, well, I'm going to take a sabbatical and I'll be back, but I'm going to go and try to start my family for a couple of years. And that was not easy for Anne. She had to go out as a different version of Heart with, you know, Anne Wilson from Heart and go touring and talk about Spinal Tap. I mean, the stories I heard on those tours were all the way Spinal Tap, like stuck in the mud, the trailer, <laughs> and, you know, babies on, in diapers on in one bus, and pretty bad horror stories. Oh, boy. That's all timing, too, especially if you're at different stages in your yeah. life. That's tough. Well, the thing with heart is, heart itself, it's an equation, and plus Nancy equals heart, right? So right. there's no other real version of heart. We've tried a few things, and it's fun to do, but... There's not a real heart without the two of us on stage together. So, you know. Okay, I want to finish my list of why bands dissolve and how heart fits in with that, because you basically have a tentacle in almost every category. Another one is just flat-out personality clashes. Like the police, Stuart Copeland and Sting didn't mix yeah. well. And in The Who, Daltrey is a very different guy from Townsend. Right, right. What about that in heart? Not so much in heart. I mean, early on, Roger Fisher was a crazy ass, you know, crazy man. <laughs> and even though I was his girlfriend for a while there, I just had a hard time 
seeing my way past, you know, some of his personality stuff. Right. And he kind of did it to himself in a lot of ways. And so the personality there didn't work. And, you know, he was let go. And that was part of the reason. But he was also not doing his musical homework very well and letting the party life take over his life. So, you know, I guess you could say the personality thing just didn't really work out early on. Well, he actually said that being let go of heart probably saved his life. Yeah. He was so crazy back then. Could be true. And hopefully it's helped him balance things out. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I came up with one more reason bands break up and I want to see if this ever happened to heart. Has an interloper, an outsider ever come in to fuck things up like Yoko allegedly did with the Beatles and Janine in Spinal Tap? Of course, Janine. Um, Well, I guess, you know, and married a guy that really had a control issue thing going on about the band and how he thought the band should run. And it didn't jive with me or the band. So I think that's kind of gone away now, which is really great. But I think there was a lot of control freak stuff going on there and tension getting and all kinds of weird behavioral stuff. And it just wasn't comfortable to be in the band for a while there. And I think that's actually resolved itself now. And I'm excited about that. You did it. You fit every category. (laughs) Just rack them up. You won rock and roll breakup bingo. Congratulations, (laughs) Nancy. Your first single appeared on a B-side of a country track titled, I'm Gonna Drink My Hurt Away. Right. And there's kind of a Spinal Tap moment about that, right? Well, some people heard Anne singing in a club who were songwriters for country western song people and asked her to come into a, a real studio and cut a few tracks. They had three songs for two singles that they wanted her to sing, I'm Gonna Drink My Hurt Away and these other ones. But there was a fourth side that was unspoken for. So they said, do you have any songs? And she and I both had written one of our very first songs at that time called Through Eyes and Glass. (laughs) But anyway, we got to go into this real recording studio and play the song and play the flute solo and record a song for real. And then the company pressed like 500 copies of it and send them out to jukeboxes in the country, and that's the last anybody ever heard of it, except for the collectors now who have copies of that that they found and collected with our first ever recorded song on it. So it's a real rarity. But didn't it have the wrong band title and totally admit you from the credits? Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, Aaron's band at the time was called Daybreak, but they called it Ann Wilson and the Daybreaks. So she was kind of like mortified. You know, that's the price of an education, like we say. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of my band, The Falling Will End, is one day I was looking on eBay to see what the value of one of our albums was. And I look, <laughs> and there's a completely, <laughs> and it's never very much, although once it was like $700. Wow. Well, of course, I was selling it myself for $700, but, you know, it looked good. <laughs> but so I'm looking, and all of a sudden, I see a copy of our album. It's got a different cover. And it was released in Britain. And so I looked at it. I find out it's on this record label of one of the first Apple employees from the Beatles, Tony Bramwell. 
And so he wrote a book called Magical Mystery Tour, My Journey with the Beatles or something. And in that book, there's a whole page about him managing the Falling Willendas and how we were going to be in a movie with Nicolas Cage and that we're recording an album with Butch Vig. It was all a lie. It was wow. it's just totally fabricated. But wow. I'm kind of pleased with it because I'm actually in a book about the Beatles. But yeah. it has no bearing with the truth. He never managed us. I met him once and I don't know how he released the album. But yeah. <laughs> a little bit pathological there. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I didn't know you were such a big star, Alan. Honestly, I would have given you a lot more respect all this time. I didn't know either until I read that book. <laughs> You, Nancy, are our first guest who's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. And the class of 2013 is about as eclectic as the songs on that KTEL record of mine. <laughs> it was Rush, Albert King, Randy Newman, Donna Summer, Public Enemy, Quincy Jones, you guys, among others. Wow. First, you were inducted by fellow Seattle, like the late, great Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Yeah. Right? And Jerry Cantrell from Allison Chains and Mike McCready from Pearl Jam joined you and Anne on stage along with some of your original band members to play Barracuda. Right. Any Spinal Tap moments that you remember from that whole <laughs> undertaking? Yeah, there was a whole reluctance to getting back with the original lineup going on four and a half decades later, you know, because there was ill will and there were unfinished feelings about things that happened and how people were sort of let go from the band and things like that. So when we got the call that we were going to be inducted, we had to think it over really hard. A lot of people make a big fuss about not going out with their first lineup and we didn't want to be those people. So we said, okay, we'll do it, but it's not going to be fun for us or easy because of all of the unfinished business. We showed up for this one rehearsal leading up to the event itself at a rehearsal space in LA and it was so tense. You could cut the air with a knife, you know, it was like, ah! <laughs> there was definitely a chill in the air. So me being a peacemaker, I kind of came in and it's like, Hey, give everybody a hug, you know, and try to break the ice and, but not until I sort of told my husband, would you come along with me and be my gargoyle in this situation? Because <laughs> I've got two ex-boyfriends in that room and I kind of <laughs> need you there, you know, it turned out fine. And we just actually, we just watched it the other night. It was pretty great. It is pretty great. Then we did crazy on you, I think with the original lineup and then Barracuda with the, at the time, the current lineup. There's been a lot of lineups in this band, but uh, the cast of Ben-Hur has been in heart, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Our first guest, Todd Suckerman, he left the Falling Melendez for sticks. Oh. So we didn't talk for two years. Oh. And then he found out that I was getting married from another bandmate. So he thought this was a great way to talk again. And so he left a message on my machine saying, Hey, Alan, I heard you're getting married tomorrow. Congratulations, blah, blah, blah. Well, what he didn't know, because my bandmate didn't tell him, was it was a surprise wedding. <laughs> so my wife calls me when I was at work and goes, are we getting married tomorrow? I go, 
Oh, what? No. How did you know? She was Todd left a message. He goes, Todd, darn you. <laughs> so, so she heard him on the message machine at home? Yeah, she heard him. Oh. <laughs> so she had 24 hours to get ready and it was still exciting. But at the same time, Maybe it would be a good idea for the bride to get ready for a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Basically, the drummer for Sticks proposed on Alan's behalf to his wife. That's true. Right. That's true. Yeah. I never looked at it that way. No. But that's why maybe it's best to keep former bandmates at arm's length. Yeah. Nancy, as we wrap up here, and again, thanks for this conversation. Of course. This last thing is a little bit of a improv riff on local connections. And the idea is thinking on the fly of a Spinal Tap moment that happened in a particular place. Let's start with Portland. And I know that you were a student at Portland State University. You've undoubtedly gigged here before. A lot. Can you think of any Spinal Tap moments that happened here in Portland? I love that city. So yeah, I played a lot of bars <laughs> with an acoustic guitar by myself. And I guess maybe... The weird thing that would always happen when people were drunk in the bar and I'd just be sitting playing my guitar and singing songs like Beatles songs, Moody Blues songs, Nice and White Satin. I'd be doing Joni Mitchell songs like Paved Paradise. I would do Stairway to Heaven by myself on acoustic. I'd do Locomotive Breath by... <laughs> Jeff Rotel. So I'm kind of a rock set list, right? So... You know, anybody at the bar would be like, oh, yeah, hey, she's a hip chick, you know, whatever. Ultimately, some old guy would get really plastered and goes like, hey, do you know time in a bottle? You know? <laughs> do you play Misty for me? And so I'm like, uh, I don't know Misty, but we could all sing it a cappella in the room, you know, like, look at me. <laughs> oh, boy. When he brought up uh, Time in the Bottle, how did he pronounce Jim Croce? <laughs> he didn't say Jim Perot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. My Portland story is that when I was tour managing Radiohead on Pablo Honey, we were driving, I think, from Vancouver down to San Francisco overnight, expecting to wake up on the bus in San That's Francisco. It's a long drive. It's a long drive. And I got out of my bunk thinking we were in San Francisco, and the bus driver said, uh, it lives. And I said, where are we? He's like, uh, we're in Portland. I'm like, why? Well, the bus had broken down, but he didn't want to wake me up. He just wanted me to kind of find out when I got out of my bunk. So anyway, the very first thing I had to do that morning was we all had to abandon ship, get all of our stuff off the bus. We never saw that bus again and had to find alternative transportation to San Francisco. So it was a major, to use the term that Justin Timberlake coined, equipment malfunction. Did you actually play the show that same night? Mercifully, it was a day off, so we did not yeah. have to get there that night, but that would have just added to the stress. Ugh. How about a story from Seattle? Well, a story from Seattle, um, we did a movie called Singles, and we filmed it in Seattle that had members of Pearl Jam and um, Chris Cornell as actors in the story. And so we had the uh, rap party for Singles, in Seattle at the Edgewater Inn. Oh, yeah. And it was the sceniest Seattle scene of all scenes. And it was like everybody from Mark Arm and Screaming Trees and Tad was a band that was there. Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, 
all these guys. And everybody was just plastered, you know, doing various drugs of all kinds. And we were all in this hotel room a suite with a balcony overlooking Puget Sound. Nice. It was like, wah, you know, it was like, woohoo, woohoo. And suddenly I kind of noticed in my peripheral vision, I think it was either Tad or Mark Arm was throwing up in a planter. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I think it might be time to go. It was just like one of those Seattle moments you never forget. Uh, that's so classic. And of course, there was a legendary Led Zeppelin misbehavior at the Edgewater Hotel too. <laughs> My Seattle story, I have several, but I'll just share one. I was on tour with PJ Harvey on the dry tour, and that was a Spinal Tap moment laden tour for sure. <laughs> and in fact, that was the first show of the tour was the Club Rock Candy. Yeah. And I was in the middle of settling the show and collecting the money when I heard the band and they're set and they only were doing like a 45 minute set. And I felt like I needed to be there when they came off stage. So I closed my anvil briefcase and I went <laughs> bolting down the stairs to get backstage and I hit a wet spot and slipped and literally my oh. boots went over my head. I mean, I think I was off the ground, oh. briefcase smashed into the wall and I just sort of did a somersault, got back up and kept running. And I think I made it to where I needed to be on time, but I realized I broke my thumb. Ooh. Which I never got treated, but uh, you know, professional hazards, I think, of just being out there. It's rough out there. Alan and I are both from Milwaukee, and I do want to see if you can conjure any memories from Milwaukee. The one that I have is that I saw Hart play at the Mecca Arena with Cheap Trick as your opener, co-headliner, whatever it was, and it was a very snowy night. In fact, there was a blizzard, and I think that many fans thought the show that would be canceled or rescheduled due to the weather, but in the spirit of the show must go on, it actually went through. Any specific memories of Milwaukee? We'd always do the joke about the beer that made Milfamy Wakas. <laughs> the Milwaukee beer that... Schlitz. Schlitz, right. Schlitz, the beer that made Milfamy Wakas. <laughs> And I think on the stage a couple of times, we'd try to make that joke and everybody was so sick of it. Nobody laughed, you know, it was like, oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. You've heard it before. So yeah, don't say the Milfamy Wakas joke in Milwaukee. <laughs> well, I saw you in Milwaukee at County Stadium in like 78, probably. And, oh, really? Yes. And um, as part of like the World Series of Rock or whatever? I don't remember. All I remember is I saw you play Crazy on You, the intro, and I just fell in love with you. I was just, it was the coolest oh. thing I ever saw and the harmonics and everything. Was it an outdoor festival? It was a stadium show. Oh. It was the Milwaukee Brewers Stadium. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I'm not sure. I think Cheap Trick was on the bill, like even opening or something. Yeah. They opened for us a thousand times. Oh, you were. The guy with the jeans and the t-shirt, right? That was that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, and my exactly. fly open. <laughs> Every picture from back then, my fly is open for some reason. Right. Yeah. Alan's my real right. claim to fame from Milwaukee is that both of our bands played at Shank Hall. Yes. Uh, Named after Spinal Tap's Milwaukee venue. Oh, man. That's so good. Thank you so much, Nancy. This has really been yeah. an absolute joy. We like to close out by asking, like, where can our listeners keep up on your latest news, Hart's latest news, that kind of thing. You can check in on my 
Instagram account, my Twitter, and see what's up because there's a lot coming up in the next year or two that I'm very excited about, including Madison XOXO, my new artist on the new management company, Roadcase Management. But also we're talking about hearts. So me and my sister are getting together in Nashville to do some songwriting for some live shows. Fantastic. This has really been a thrill. And we really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Fun to talk to you guys. You know, it's a special kind of thrill to speak with a legend whose music in your life goes all the way back to your childhood soundtrack and isn't part of the cast of Sesame Street. We're grateful to Nancy Wilson for sharing her stories with all of us so generously. Thanks also to Michelle Gutenstein from Mad Inc. PR for helping us to connect with Nancy. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TMEP Show. And you can send us comments and suggestions via DM on socials or email at hello at TMEPshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers... This podcast is not affiliated with This Is Final Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend, and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There is, uh, well, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show, wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today. And uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Evergreen Podcast Network.